the the restriction on on open systems. The, the term that they use in the management rule is to prevent artificial filling. A strict reading or just even a, a reasonable reading. If they're saying you need, an ex, you need a license and registration to export um, and they're banning filled open filled systems, I don't see how you'd get that license. Hi, I'm Brett Stafford and this is RegWatch by RegulatorWatch.com. China's influence over the global supply chain is enormous. Products made in China are essential to so many industries, but few rely more on Chinese manufacturing than the e-cigarette industry. Nearly all vaping hardware and accessories are manufactured in China. And late last year, China amended its laws so that vaping manufacturers and sellers now fall under the authority of the country's State Tobacco Monopoly Administration. This means vaping products and their manufacturers will be subject to strict regulation by the Chinese government under the same regulatory authority as cigarettes. Could this move present a threat to vaping around the globe? Joining us today to answer that question is Azim Chowdhury in Washington, D.C. and David Ettinger in Shanghai, China, both esteemed regulatory lawyers from the firm Keller & Heckman. Gentlemen, thanks for joining us on RegWatch. Thanks, Brett. Thanks for having us. Well, it's good that you both are here because understanding the impact of what's happening in China is frankly a heavy lift and of critical importance to the global e-cigarette industry. David, let's start with you. Tell us a bit about the firm's work in China and experience in tobacco-related products. Sure. Well, uh, our firm, Keller & Heckman, is based in Washington, D.C. I'm out here, as you say, in Shanghai, China. We opened up this office back in 2004. We specialize in various regulatory issues, consumer products, food, drug, cosmetics, and of course, e-cigarettes. And so uh, it's a natural fit for, for me here in China and, and Azim in our DC office to work together on helping clients with uh, at least the topic of the day, e-cigarettes, uh, import and export of those types of products. Now, David, regarding e-cigarette regulations in China, top line for us, what's happened? Yeah, so let me start by saying this, and you touched on it. Uh, yeah, I think to understand what's happening in China, you have to at least look to see what already exists or has been existing uh, for traditional e-cigarettes. So as you say, Brent, you've got uh, the State Tobacco Monopoly Administration. Uh, many others also refer to them as CNTC, the China National Tobacco Company. Uh, these names are interchangeable, but when you start to talk about uh, the state tobacco monopoly, they are really in charge of issuing the regulations, which we're going to cover a lot about today. But CNTC, to be clear, this is a tobacco company. It's in fact the largest manufacturer of tobacco products in the world. They manufacture some 40% of the world's total consumption of traditional cigarettes. And in China, there are some 30 plus provinces um, some are more known than others. Shenzhen uh, probably is very well known to some of your listeners because of most of the e-cigarettes, 95 plus percent, uh, being made in a small uh, district called Baoan in Shenzhen. But there are other pro provinces where CNTC has tobacco labels. So there's a Yunnan label, there's a Shenzhen, there's a uh, Zhejiang label. Uh, and they control, CNTC does, controls all of those provincial brands. And of course, they collect the tax revenues that are generated. And the total revenue that CNTC collects from these traditional brands is about 6% of the government's total revenue. So we're talking about billions and billions of dollars. 
to put it into perspective how big CNTC is, they own seven of the top 10 global traditional cigarette brands. Uh, so that's over 1 trillion cigarettes per year. And to put it into real perspective, that would be the equivalent of the US Food and Drug Administration controlling the manufacturing, distribution, and sales of every drug manufacturer's product in the United States. So it's a massive, massive enterprise. And that's incredible, uh, huge. So essentially the company that's the largest tobacco company in the world is also the regulator of those products in China. That's correct. So the, the regulations are usually published by the State Tobacco Monopoly Administration. And of course, they are overseen by the State Council, which is the highest regulatory body in China. And it flows down from there. So I'm sure we're going to be touching on uh, the recent developments because in the last sort of six months, things have really evolved in the area of e-cigarettes. So happy to uh, talk a little bit more about that. Oh, yeah. Well, certainly that is what we're going to be doing. Azim, let's go to you. You are a frequent guest on this show. Help us help us better understand what is going on here. Should we be concerned about these regulations in China for the rest, the global industry? Well, I definitely think that anytime you have a major uh, source of the product, the country where these manufacturers are operating, come under a new authority or new regulation, that's going to have an impact on the global environment. Um, this is something that has probably been in the works for many years. We've been anticipating at some point that the Chinese authorities would act and, and bring these products within their scope uh, of law. Um, in some ways, this is a positive development for, for the industry in China and around the, and around the world. Um, China, given their, uh, as David just mentioned, their emphasis on traditional cigarettes and the impact that those products have on their economy, um, it, it, it would have been easy for them to squash this industry, prevent Chinese consumers from having access to e-cigarettes so that those consumers could continue to smoke their homegrown products. But the fact that China is now looking to officially um, open the door to vaping products to Chinese consumers, uh, I think is, is, is a tremendous potential benefit um, for the 300 million smokers uh, who, who, who are in China. Um, so that's number one. Number two, I think, you know, looking at the impact we're, we're, we're going to talk about today that this will have on the global industry, the vaping industry, um, is going to be a big deal for the rest of us. Well, and I think that obviously is where some of the concern at least lies for myself because they're huge. And uh, let's take a look at... Um, some of the actual language around the rules. You know, I pulled this out of a couple of the articles that we've curated on RegWatch and including the December 6th continuum of risk, which is your guys' column that you do uh, from Keller Heckman. So this particular bit right here, so this was a decision on amending the implementation regulations of the tobacco monopoly law of the People's Republic of China. And specifically to that, regulations on e-cigarettes and other new tobacco products shall be implemented with the reference to the relevant provisions on cigarettes and in the regulations. And to that end, e-cigarettes and traditional cigarettes are homogeneous 
in terms of core ingredients, product functions, and consumption methods. And that comes from your column, Azeem. And based on that, that is kind of my main first question and concern here. And that concern is, is that essentially the government of China is saying that e-cigarettes are a tobacco product. They've got the same ingredients as combustible cigarettes. And it's that's that basic untruth. Is that not at the very heart of a lot of the challenges that we have with FDA and Health Canada and North American and global regulators? It's the problem that e-cigarettes, we believe, um, are not the same as a combustible cigarette. Yeah, that's a great point, Brent. I think what, what the uh, ministry is doing there is justifying uh, extending the Tobacco Monopoly Act to e-cigarettes or, or, or novel tobacco products because there has to be some basis for that. They're not looking to extend this to cover a food or, 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 or a cosmetic. Um, so their justification is that at the end of the day, in their view, this is just another form of a tobacco product. Um, obviously, what, you know, what we know is that the, the ingredients are very different. We're not dealing with a combusted product, which contains on the cigarette side, you know, thousands of, of harmful chemicals. And on the e-cigarette side, you're dealing with just, you know, a, a, a much smaller number of, of, of ingredients. Um, totally different, you know, technology versus tobacco. But for, from the official standpoint, and David, feel free to chime in here, um, I, I think what they're trying to do is 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 create that basis um, to extend the law as it applies to tobacco products to e-cigarettes or or other ends products. Not that much different for how FDA used the deeming rule to extend its tobacco authority beyond cigarettes and traditional products to to e-cigarettes. First of all, I want to say that Azim is exactly right. It's interesting the. The, the line that you put up on the screen in one sentence to put things in perspective. In one sentence, the authorities have put uh, e-cigarettes and novel products under the monopoly. And just so your listeners understand, prior to that, uh, there was no classification uh, like an e-cigarette being a tobacco product. In fact, prior to November, when this was officially done, it was really treated as a consumer product uh, but very few, if any, uh, regulations to surround the classification of consumer products. So yes, now we are at least on very strong foundation that this is going to be a tobacco product. There are two really important regulations uh, or standards that at least your listeners should be aware of at this point. Uh, in November, we saw the, uh, the release of the management rules. Uh, this is a, probably about a 20, 20 page document, which goes through the different rules uh, that we now start to see how the authorities will regulate. And we'll talk about some of the, the ups and downs of those rules. Uh, but that's one set of rules, the management rules. And then we also saw in December the release of the GB standard. This is a national mandatory standard called uh, GB standard. Uh, and that is specifically on e-cigarettes. And that standard, by the way, has been revised. This is the second iteration of that document. And in fact, the first iteration, which was released a few years ago, was some 65 pages, uh, and now it's far fewer. Uh, I think it's probably about 15 pages in length. Um, and so it's, it's, it's a type of document that should get your hands around it and understand it, but it does have some advantages and disadvantages 
um, in terms of how the authorities will regulate. So, you know, we can talk about some of the disadvantages if you want to start there, Brent. Well, I mean, the disadvantages are the most pertinent, I think, for some. Uh, what are they? Okay. So I think we should probably preface everything we're saying today uh, in two ways. First, obviously, this is not legal advice. You know, we are not engaged to counsel anyone on this particular matter, although on, on a separate time and date, we'd be happy to do so. Secondly, I think your listeners should understand that like any new set of regulations, there's going to be an evolution of those regulations and there's going to be a lot of gray area. And so while we have been looking at this and actually preparing to file comments on the GB standards, which are due next uh, next Saturday, so the 29th, I believe, is when the authorities are actually taking comments. So this is a great time for your listeners uh, to think about potentially submitting comments uh, to the GB standards. I should add that the management rules that I referenced earlier, the more detailed rules about how they're gonna regulate, that comment period has passed. That was uh, back in December of last year. But the good news there is that the authorities are listening to industry and stakeholders, and hopefully they will take some of these comments and refine the regulations when they're finalized. But going to some of the things that at least right now uh, are, would be somewhat concerned to industry, we have clauses, for example, that deal with flavors. Uh, and the authorities are very concerned about the use of flavors that can induce minors to, to using e-cigarettes. And so for the time being, there are some 130, 132 flavors that they actually include almost like a positive list. It's a temporary list of flavors in Appendix B of the GB e-cigarette standard that one can use at least now. Now, what's interesting about that list is they preface this list by saying that we do not want to have a e-cigarette device that is an open device. So this, of course, should be somewhat alarming to uh, your listeners who are manufacturing open devices because the authorities right now do not want, um, whether it's probably geared more towards minors, uh, to fill the cigarette device with, they even quote, marijuana or other flavors that can induce minors. What's curious about that is that if you look at the ban on the open system and you compare that to the list of 132 additives that they provide, some of those flavors are cocoa, lavender, uh, vanilla, coffee flavored. And so there's a bit of a disconnect between the authorities taking the position that they don't want people to add liquids that can induce minors and having certain flavors that could potentially, if used improperly, do just that. I can tell you though, that the authorities have also said, and here's a bit of good news, that if your flavors are not on that list, that there will be an opportunity to expand that list by submitting probably in the form of a dossier uh, to the authorities, demonstrating that the flavor that you want to have added to the list is safe. And if you can do that, uh, we're hoping that that list will expand over time. David, are these the actual like ingredients to create the flavors, you know, from particular flavor manufacturers, that kind of thing? I trying to get a sense of understanding that because there's a mango, but then there's also a company who makes a mango juice that's got maybe a bunch of different flavors all added together to create mango. That's right. So as it would stand now, you'd have to at least make your recipe, if you will, based on the flavors that are in that list. Again, that list can be expanded. They ex explicitly say it can be uh, by submitting a safety assessment 
However, and this is where we see oftentimes when regulations are, are very new, there's no detail as to what that safety assessment should be. Although I can tell you, they do say that it should address the safety of ingestion, it should address the safety of inhalation, and it should address the safety of its use in a finished device. Now, so just so our audience understands that this is a regulation that affects the Chinese domestic market only. Well, this is a regulation that affects the domestic market, but if you're importing your products and your imported products do not contain those flavors, it can very well impact you as well. So this, this would be more of a, a global impact, if you will, in terms of what's permitted uh, for use in the country. If you're selling into China. If you're selling into China, then there's an aspect to the regulation that speak about for export only. Now that gets into a whole nother area, which, um, you know, is, is going to be interesting to see how that unfolds. So one of, and I'll get to that in a second, but one of the other really important factors here is that in addition to limiting to the flavors in Appendix B, the authorities are also requiring that all products, all e-cigarette products be registered and all facilities be licensed. And so that's going to be a significant additional regulatory burden to the industry. The question remains whether or not when you submit your registration for your e-cigarette product and you use, for example, a flavor that's not on that list, whether or not the authorities would accept that registration. The way it reads now, there could be a very good rationale or argument to say that the authorities would not accept that registration, nor would they permit a license of your facility if your facility was using a uh, flavor, as an example, that's not on the list. One of the major issues, and maybe Azim, you might be able to speak to this, is is the open systems ban, essentially, in China. Yet so many companies um, here in North America rely on Chinese manufacturing of open system hardware. Is there any concern with these new rules because of that? Definitely. So um, to David's point, the the, the restriction on, on open systems appears to be an effort to prevent adulteration and contamination. So I think that the term that they use in the management rule is to prevent artificial filling um, of, of substances that perhaps may not be intended uh, for use in, in, the, in the device. Um, whether that ban will only apply to the domestic sale of products allowed in China, um, but also extend to uh, export products or products made in China that are exported overseas for sale is still a question that we need clarity on from the officials. Um, because it doesn't appear that's the intent of, of the rule to, to impact open system sales overseas. However, uh, if all production facilities in China require obtaining a production license, and if that production license is tied to the ESIG standard, which prohibits open systems, there's a little bit of a conflict there. So that's that's why filing comments is, is so important and, and, and making clear to the authorities that, you know, it, our position for, for the companies in China that are have been there for many years, um, while I'm sure they're happy to get licensed and follow the rules, 
um, we don't necessarily want to, we don't believe that the, uh, the, the STMA rules should impact the sale of open systems overseas. And there are a lot of good reasons for that. If open systems are, and I use the word banned, I hope, for, I hope that's okay, technically correct. If they're banned in the domestic market in China, would there be at some point some pressure or an issue for say, and I'll use Inakin or Aspire to not be able to get their open systems products to the US and then distribute it in the hands of the consumer? Yeah, I think this is going to be a really interesting uh, issue. And, uh, you know, if you look at the GB standards now, there, there are specific clauses that deal with uh, for export only, or I should say in the management rules. Uh, and so it specifically says right now that even if your product is for export only, you have to obtain a registration and license. So as Azim is saying, if you put those requirements together, uh, it would be very difficult for the authorities to give you a registration of a e-cigarette product if it contains uh, either a flavor that's not on the list or if it's an open system. Now, maybe it's possible the authorities don't understand the ramifications of the various rules when you put them together. And maybe as Zim says, through filing comments, we will be able to persuade the authorities that if a product is manufactured in China, but purely for export use only, that the authorities should not really waste their time or resources in looking at uh, or applying their registration and licensing requirements to products that won't be used domestically. And that the foreign countries laws and regulations should control. Right. This feels like a, a little bit more of an issue than, say, when we did our uh, prep call for the show several days ago. Um, it just feels like to me that, wow, that, that is interesting. Okay, to get a production license, you got to follow the new standard. The standard, and wait a minute, the standard is in relation to the domestic market, and which says no open systems. So will they be able to continue to manufacture a product for the global market? And we don't know the answer to that. We don't know, yeah. and again, go ahead, Azim. No, no, I, I was just going to say, you know, in, in the as we look closer at these rules and, and the translations of them, and you know, we're we're starting to find those potential inconsistencies, and that's why, again, it's so important to participate in this process that they've opened up here. Um, I, I will just add that, you know, it, the 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 Chinese authorities have have are well aware of of what's happening in Shenzhen. For the most part, over the years, they've supported the companies. Um, they understand in terms of, um, you know, the companies in Shenzhen are doing quite well for themselves, many of them. And they're employing many um, people in, in that region, right? And so, you know, my gut reaction is I don't believe the authorities are looking to necessarily shut that down or make it impossible for those facilities that have invested millions of dollars over many, many years Um to develop these products uh, in a safe manner, I don't think the government is looking to, you know, put that down. But I do think that um, it's important for those companies to participate and and be aware of the risk here to 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 make sure that the officials understand that um, uh, certain things that may make sense domestically, you know, for the sale of products, for the, all the reasons we've talked about, don't make sense to extend to export only products. With these regulations, there's issues for any company, whether you're in China or out, if you wanna sell into the Chinese market, there's issues. These regulations now cover it. I think the big understanding that 
I think, you know, that selfishly I have and that consumers of, of vaping products in North America have is that are we going to be able to still get our supply of coils and tanks and batteries and all that kind of stuff? Or, or could that potentially just be gone like that? So if you're asking from the standpoint of individual components, my sense would be that market would still be safe and alive. Azim, I don't know if you have thoughts on that, but general electronics and, and circuit boards and coils and tanks and things of that nature are probably you know, the export of those products. I don't see that being dramatically changed. They may have to still get a license, you know, to produce those or register. But, um, you know, I don't think the government's looking again to, to, to shut that down. That's right. I think it's more the companies that are making an open system in Shenzhen they will, those companies who are exporting and almost all of them are, right? Um, they, I'm predicting they will likely have difficulty getting that facility licensed because the authorities will come in and they'll say, okay, what are you making here? And they'll say, well, we're making an open system. And they'll say, well, wait a minute, well, that's, that's not allowed in China. A strict reading or just even a, a reasonable reading of the standard and management rules would suggest that's what they would do. If they're saying you, didn't ex you need a license and registration to export, um, and they're banning filled si open filled systems. I don't see how you get that license. Well, so so this is an open system. It's it uses a pod, but it's open. You fill it. This is made by Smock, right? So they might not be able to make this anymore right. and and ship it over to North America and sell it. I think one could read the language now that way. Yes. Well, yes. so that puts the entire open system hardware uh, access and business in globally outside of China at risk. Yeah, and, and that, that may be an unintended consequence that we need to clarify with the authorities and, and we need to get in front of them and, and make the argument that, you know, if, you're, if, if your intent is to really just ultimately create a monopoly for your own provincial brands to make a certain type of e-cigarette for sale in, in China, um, you can do that without disrupting the global industry and, and shutting these companies down or having them leave. Because, you know, that company, Smock, is, they may not just go out of business. They might just pick up and go to another country, you know, India or whatever. But go to Vietnam and make it. Exactly. And so I don't think the government's, you know, incentivizing um, you know, wants to incentivize their domestic homegrown industry to just pick up and move shop because that's all they would do. They would just disappear. So again, it's one of those points where I agree, strict reading of the law, there's a conflict there. It may not have been intended or understood, um, but that's why we're working with our clients to, to make that point. And we represent by and large open system companies. So we are gonna right. emphasize that in our comments. Yeah, I would imagine that alarm bells must be ringing. This particular issue is one sentence long in the GB standard. It's under what they call anti-filling. And it says electronic cigarette devices and cartridges using e-liquids must, must have a closed structure to prevent artificial filling. So um, the question then becomes, when you submit your application for a license and registration and you make it very clear that it's for export only, the question becomes, will the authorities 
give you the latitude to say, okay, open systems are legal, for example, in the US. So we will continue to allow it as long as you market for export only. That's, that's the glimmer of hope that we hope there'll be some common sense applied there. If you are asking whether someone can make a an open system in Shenzhen and sell it in Shanghai, the answer is no under present reading of the law. That's clear, that's clear. Um, they also talk about, there's a whole section about for export only. And you know, there too, they say, even if it's for export only, you need to register and license your facilities as, as we've said. They also say that you must comply with the laws and regulations of the country to which you're exporting to. And it goes on to say, if you don't, if there are no laws or regulations in the country of export, you must follow China law. So one could maybe massage that at some point to say that, okay, there is, there are laws and regulations in the US, for example, and it does allow for open systems. And so you should allow us to obtain a license and registration based on that premise. Again, provided we label it for export only. If I was, you know, making the legal argument, that's what I would do. But will they be open to that? I don't know. I do think it'll be a huge win if we can get that exemption. I think anytime we see regulations, Brent, there's always like one or two or three things that we really want to focus on to, to sort of say, wait a minute, you, you can do all this, but you can't do this. And I think you're hitting it right now, uh, what this is, which is, do you really want to ban open systems for export only? That would have a massive impact. So in, in terms of how you want to kind of headline this, it's got to be followed by a question mark, in my opinion. You know, is China saying they're going to ban open systems for export? There's another concern that you hit on, David. Um, the language in the, in the standard, or is it the rule, that says um, a product for export needs to comply with the laws of the country where it's being imported. Does that mean for Chinese companies selling open system devices, intended for the US market, that they would have to demonstrate that their open system product or whatever it is, has a PMTA authorization from FDA. Right. Right, because there's only gonna be so many of those over the years. And so now are, you, are they essentially saying, well, we're not gonna let you continue to ship products into the US or, or the EU that aren't, that aren't compliant with those countries' laws and, and now you have another issue because frankly, there are a lot of products on the market that are not fully compliant with the FDA, for example. If the Chinese government are basically putting their stamp of approval on the save the kids argument, what does that mean globally? Because at any point in time, could, could they not decide to just you know pull the plug on e-cigarettes for a moral reason, that being the minor save the kids? Well, the short answer is yes. Uh, and to give you an example of the, the, the power that they yield, you can look back to, um, I think it was in 2019, if you were to say in October of 2019, go online and uh, search in China on Chinese platforms like Tmall, for example, uh, for e-cigarette products, you would have hundreds if not thousands of products to choose from. Sometime in November of 2019, the authorities announced that uh, the sale of e-cigarettes online is prohibited. 
Literally, Brent, the next day, my team went online and you could not see a single product. Literally every product was pulled from every online platform. So that was the banning of sales and still exists to this day of e-cigarettes online. So yes, the, the, the process, uh, while there are some, some positives in terms of having a process that companies can follow, that process could evolve and could be short-circuited if they want it to be. Azim? No, I agree with that. I mean, I think we would all agree that it seems odd that um, the, 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 the government that makes 6% of its revenue off of combustible cigarettes would, would take a moral stance on e-cigarettes, which we know are you know far less harmful. And it, it goes to show that's kind of where the dialogue has gone over the years when it comes to vaping, um, even for the world's biggest tobacco company. Um, one separate point I wanted to just quickly make um, with respect to the standard and and uh, the, the the difference between what's going to be allowed domestically versus for export. Um, point that David made uh, was that CNTC or STMA has different provincial brands that are headquartered in the different locations around the country. I think there's probably 25 or 26, if I recall, where they each have their own cigarette brand. They have their own manufacturing facilities. They make the, the, the brands that are known um, that are coming from that province. Um, it's my understanding, it's our understanding, I believe that those provinces are also now either in the process of or, or developing their own e-cigarette products most likely for the domestic sales. So it could be that the standard is really intended to, with respect to the monopoly, um, extend their, their domestic tobacco monopoly for cigarettes to give their provincial brands the ability to, to have a monopoly to make e-cigarettes according to the standard for sale in China. Uh, and while, while there may be private companies in Shenzhen that can develop products that meet the standard, that make it onto, that get licensed and make it onto this platform that's going to exist for the sale of these products. Um, it'll be like cigarettes. It'll be a small percentage compared to the provincial brands that are literally subsidiaries of the government that are selling their own products. And David, tell me if you think otherwise, but that's kind of where my, you know, my feeling is where this could be headed. Yeah, I think so. I think you're right. Their focus first is the domestic marketplace and uh, looking at new products that can generate revenue just like they do for the provincial traditional cigarette brand. So there's, there's no question that they're going to play a much, much stronger role in that regard. Uh, it's interesting. I've been here now almost 10 years and five, six years ago, if you were to walk the streets of Shanghai, where I am, you would not have seen any real vape shops. I think the first one I saw was in Beijing five, six, seven years ago. And now it's, it's, it's not as prevalent as a Starbucks, but the point is pretty much the same. There are many, many vape shops throughout the city uh, in the major cities. And I do think one of the impacts that we will see is that those, if they want to implement these rules according to uh, what, the, what the rules say, and sometimes, you know, putting rules in pen to paper and enforcing, there can be a time lapse there. 
But if they choose to enforce, then I think a lot of these vape shops, for example, that are selling e-liquids or open systems, they will be shut down and we'll start to see uh, stores that are, are controlled uh, by the authorities' brands in each province. In terms of the attention of the Chinese government, are they trying to are they trying to make sure that they don't they protect the combustible market, which delivers currently right now six percent of their entire tax revenue? So the idea is is that to push or ban uh, vaping in some manner or another to protect the combustible market, or or is it in combination with that there's so much happening in the domestic e-cigarette market and so much money to be made there, they're trying to just get a control of it so they can get the biggest slice of the pie? Yeah, I think it's more the latter. I think also, again, if you just sort of walk the streets, you can see the generational gap between traditional cigarettes and e-cigarettes. Now, it's true. You still see uh, traditional cigarettes uh, being used by um, people in their 20s and 30s and 40s for sure. But there, there's sort of a penetration of the market where you're seeing more and more people using vape. And so I, if I were speculating out 10, 20, 30 years, I think the number of e-vape users will grow significantly and the number of traditional cigarette smokers will decrease significantly in China. And I, I suspect that's happening across the rest of the world. So I think that they're being mindful of that. I think they're being mindful of that in terms of making sure that these products are safe. So issuing regulations that that mandate that, but also, of course, capture the revenue uh, that will inevitably grow from this market. So based on that, David, are we not uh, to put, you know, the sunny view on all of this, that one of the, the largest country in the world with the largest population in the world, with the largest cigarette company in the world and the largest amount of smokers in the world, if they decided that e-cigarettes were not only valid, but a very good product to transition their smokers off onto, and to save their lives, isn't that then going to be a hugely positive thing for the global vaping market? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, uh, you know, if you look at other countries in Asia, there are certain countries that outright banned e-cigarettes. I believe Malaysia, don't quote me on this, I believe Malaysia was one of them where it was you were not permitted. And now, just this week or last week, Malaysia has issued some regulations which are going to open up the door to uh, being able to get your products uh, registered. So it does seem that countries sometimes first take a sort of a precautionary approach first. But as I think the research and data comes out, and if the research can show uh, that these are safer alternatives, and that's not something that I'm tracking, I'm not the expert in that side, and I know there's, there's data out there, but that data will continue to, to grow and, and be developed. Uh, I do think that there's a real possibility uh, for China to expand uh, you know, or at least allow more players uh, to to participate. In this Azim, regard, what do you think. think there? Yeah, the potential for tobacco harm reduction uh, is tremendous. If even a fraction of those Chinese smokers are switching to vaping products, you know, and if the government is seeing the writing on the wall, as David mentioned, if, if the younger generation is switching to vaping anyway, even if those are technically not regulated or black market products. Um, I think it certainly makes sense that they would they would see that and want to to get in on it and make sure that they that they don't lose that uh, huge revenue uh, generator, you know, of, of adults using tobacco products. But if they can do that at the same time, 
keep people from from smoking and and, and dying from from smoking. Um, it seems like a win-win for the government and and harm reduction, which I think could have a huge impact globally uh, if 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 that were to happen. Now, David, I mean, what, if any, is your firm doing uh, on behalf of clients and so forth to help mitigate some of these issues or at least to try to work with the Chinese government on these regulations? Is there anything you're doing? Yeah, as I said, we, we started, uh, Zim and I, teaming up on the on these issues probably five, six, seven years ago now. And in fact, Azim came over here uh, back in 2015 timeframe, and we, we have worked together uh, to, to sort of see what is happening. And the first step is to monitor the situation. Uh, we've been, for example, from day one, going to conferences where uh, there are people from the various agencies who signal what may be happening. And so certainly it's really important as a first step to monitor the changes in the regulations and the laws. And in China, where I've been practicing for some 10 years now, it can be very challenging because laws, as I use the example with online sales being banned, uh, the laws can change on a daily or weekly basis uh, and they can be announced quite quickly. So what we're doing is monitoring that. Uh, and when laws do come out as they have in, in November, December of last year, we are developing uh, coalitions. So we have uh, many, many companies where we form a coalition and we submit comments to the authorities uh, on behalf of the coalition. Uh, so we did that back in December when the comments were due for the management rules. And we put together a document which will certainly capture the attention of the authorities because you have very significant stakeholders that have joined the coalition. And I will say, being a regulatory lawyer for so many years here, the authorities are really good about seeing what's out there. So they recognize that there are certain systems, whether it's e-cigarettes or food or other products, where other authorities, agencies around the world have already looked at this. And so they don't wanna necessarily reinvent the wheel. Uh, so they will uh, listen very carefully to what's going on. And, and that's where we come in. We can kind of educate them and let them know what FDA is doing, what the EU is doing. Uh, and sort of steer it in the direction that makes sense. So this is one of the most effective things we do. And again, we'll be doing the comments that are due January 29th for the GB standards on e-cigarettes. So if any of your listeners are interested in joining that coalition, they can reach out to me or Azim and we'd be happy to uh, discuss with them. But this is where we are now. We are at the point where we're shaping regulations. And then of course, where inevitably based on the way the regulations are written, just like we do with food ingredients or health products, we will be able to petition the authorities or help companies register their products, help them generate the data that they need. Uh, again, some of those details are, are not clear, but we will be monitoring those details. And you know, a little bit of a plug for Keller and Heckman, we're not just lawyers, we have a full scientific support staff of chemists and toxicologists who work together to create dossiers and been doing this for decades, both in the US, EU, and now in Asia, where we're submitting dossiers to get substances cleared. Now, we've been doing this on the food additive, food additive side as an example, or flavorant side as an example, but the way the regulations are unfolding, it's quite clear that we'll be doing this on the e-cigarette side, helping companies with registration and licensing requirements.
Let me ask you this, David, and in your opinion, is the Chinese government transparent when it comes to what it's doing with regulations? I think they are definitely transparent. And I think what's going to happen is, you know, right, any framework regulation is not going to have a lot of meat on its bones, but they will certainly issue some guidelines in the future. They will issue some Q&As. Uh, they're receptive to uh, making phone calls to ask questions about what is needed. And so I do think as time evolves and as they continue to learn, uh, they will make known to industry what is required. Now, that may result in the filtering of a lot of players who may not want to put the time and effort into um, marketing their products. Uh, but if you look at any industry in China over the last 10, 20, 30 years, whether you're talking about, you know, the Uber of China, DD, uh, you know, these companies, they have to invest a lot of money up front, but the long-term gains can be massive, uh, particularly in China when you're looking at uh, a, a massive population who uh, will likely want to switch to these types of products more and more as the years go by. Excellent. Excellent. So Azim, you've got, you know, a lot of experience and understanding of FDA. If you had a choice between FDA or the state monopoly uh, in China, which one would you pick? That's a good question. Um, you know, in, in a lot of ways, the, the state um, tobacco monopoly administration in China is, is ahead of FDA. Um, in the 12 years since FDA has had authority over tobacco products, we have not seen a single tobacco product standard for an e-cigarette. We have not seen a single GMP or tobacco product manufacturing standard. Um, we haven't seen any regulations with respect to actual marketing or things that people expected would come right after deeming. So, you know, the way that FDA has, has sort of uh, taken their authority from, from, the, uh, from the Tobacco Control Act, um, they've put the onus on the industry to develop these, um, you know, massive pre-market applications to put, to, to prove to FDA that their products are made safely, that they're meeting standards, that the FDA hasn't really defined, that, um, that they are appropriate for the protection of the public health. But it, that's almost putting the cart before the horse uh, without any actual regulations to, to proceed those applications. And as we've seen recently with what's happening with the PMTA process here, um, FDA really wasn't very transparent at all with how it reviewed those applications that were submitted last year. And, suddenly denied millions of them uh, creating what, what some would say are, are new standards uh, for the flavored products that they never really um, made before, never indicated would be requirements before. So, um, you know, uh, the STMA here is, if you look at the standard, certainly they look, you know, they, they, there's room for improvement, but at least you know what you're getting. You know that if you want to enter the Chinese market, if you can meet the standard and get licensed and meet the requirements for the ingredients and all the other factors, um, you know, it seems like there's a way to do that. Whereas unfortunately with the FDA, 
it's it's um, almost the other way around right now. So Azim, uh, as we wrap up here, I know that you guys, uh, you and David, I think, have something going on in terms of a symposium. Why don't you fill our viewers in on that? Sure. Yeah, our annual uh, e-vapor and tobacco law symposium uh, is coming up in a couple of weeks on February 2nd and 3rd. Uh, it is virtual this year due to COVID. We're hoping to be back in person hopefully next year. Uh, but we are uh, covering a wide range of issues for the industry. Obviously, FDA, FDA law, state law, what's happening with flavors. Uh, we're covering scientific issues. What is it going to take to get a flavored product through the PMTA process? We're covering what's happening with the PACT Act in the U.S. Um, we're also covering global issues. So what latest update on the TPD uh, and David and um, our, our colleague Eric Gu in our Shanghai office will be covering uh, the update on China. So make sure to to uh, join us for that event. Well, very interesting. Interesting times. Uh, clearly, uh, what goes on in China affects everybody around the world, no doubt. Gentlemen, thank you so much for coming on the show today. It's been a pleasure, Brent. Thank, thank you. you for having us.